0: We are going to read from Luke 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn to that. Um, I want to encourage you as we read this, that this is not just uh, to set up a sermon, or it's not just to fill time. But as we read the Bible each week, we believe that God speaks. So we don't just open it, pick apart, and then just read it to set up a sermon. I want to encourage us that as we read... Ask, read it, engage with it, see what God is speaking to you through this passage and to us as a church. Is that cool? So be active. It's on the screen. Have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table. Feel free to grab one. Take it home if you want. Um, Let's be engaging in God's word. So he speaks to us. So uh, Luke 19 from verse 28. And when he, that's Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and when he drew near Beth Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he said he sent two of his disciples saying go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it you shall say this the lord has need of it so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There you go. So for some of you, that story may be familiar. Uh, as a story of Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today. It's sort of all throughout Christian tradition. uh, this Sunday has been marked as Palm Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem and then a week later is Easter when he dies and rises again, which we celebrate next week. Um, and if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been exploring this theme called The Way, been uh, looking at Luke. Has anyone been reading through? All right, not bad, not bad. Um We've been reading through Luke and encouraging us to actually sort of prepare our hearts for Easter, prepare our hearts for what God will do in us. But also, like John said, that what God would do through us, that we have an opportunity to go into our community, to share the message, to knock on people's door, give them a gift and say, Jesus loves you and he died for you. Like, I think we should prepare ourselves for that because it's a great opportunity that we have. And so... Um, if we hear the first week, we talked about uh, the road to life, that Jesus actually shows us that by losing our life, we find it through Him. Uh, if you hear last week, Shane talked about humility, that the way of Jesus is one of humility, of recognizing our own brokenness before God and actually not being trusting in our own self-righteousness, but actually turning to Him for mercy and for grace and forgiveness. And today, we want to look at receiving the King, that the way is about receiving the King and um, you guys are going to like this. I've, I've got, it's all R letters today. Receiving the king and the three points. Man, this is like legit stuff, all right? Number one, the reign of the king. Two, the renovation of the king. And three, the response to the king. Yeah, Wado likes that one. Three R's, nice and easy to remember. All right, so we're going to look at all these things in light of what does it mean to receive the king. And and we're not necessarily going to go through verse by verse here, but what I wanted to do is actually take us through the broader chapter and look at the whole chapter 19, see the different things. Because what I believe is that there's all these things that have been put together intentionally. Often we can read the Gospels. I don't know if you've been reading it, but I've been reading it, and it's sort of like, it seems a bit chaotic. There's things happening, things happening. It's like, what's going on? And then... It's actually important to remember that it's actually ordained. It's actually written in such a way. Things happen in such a way. It was planned. It was revealed in such a way. And we'll see this morning that these things all lead into each other and Jesus trying to tell a big picture story, as well as these little picture stories throughout it. So important to remember that as we read the Gospels, it's not just accidentally placed, that everything is there on purpose. So firstly, in verse 11, so you've got to keep your Bibles over because we're going to be jumping over chapter 19. In, in verse 11, Jesus tells this parable. It's a parable of the ten minas. And it says that he was approaching Jerusalem and people were thinking that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. Uh, but instead, what Jesus does, is he tells this story about how a person went away, but he was still in charge, and he came back to sort of see what they had done with his kingdom. Which is really, when you read through the parable, this is the reality that we live in. As we talked about the first week, we live in this sort of now and not yet kingdom where Jesus is in charge, but he's not like physically here. I know John said that like he is, but like we can't see him. It would be cool if we did. Although as we go through today, it might not be so cool. He did some... You know, offensive thing. Not offensive, but like, he takes charge when he needs to take charge. But, you know, Jesus isn't exactly here. We can't see him. So we live by faith, actually believing that he is king, even though I can't see it. And that's really the point of this parable, because there's some people that live as if he's king, and there's others who don't. There's these citizens, and it says in verse 14 that the citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying... We do not want this man to reign over us. And this phrase is repeated later on in verse 27, that we did not want this man to reign over us. And as I was reading through this chapter, I was like, that sort of, that struck me. And it sort of lingered as I, as I was going through that this is the heart of so many people, not just in Jesus' day, but in our day, where people say, we do not want this man to reign over us. And that's really, as we talk about receiving the king, the reality is we receive Jesus as he is. We can't pick and choose what sort of king we get. We can't take bits and pieces from this. And as, we, as we'll go on, we'll see that. But we live in this world where many people, they, Mark Sayers puts it this way, he's a pastor out in Blackburn, he says, people want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. Many people want the benefits of God. They want the joy and the hope and the peace and the the healing or the provision or the community or the justice, the good works. They want the benefits of the kingdom, but they don't necessarily want the king. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be someone in authority over them. They don't want... And we need to be aware of this because the reality is, I think, that can often creep into our lives and in the church. I mean, how many times have you been like, okay, I like the good things of church, but some of these other things, do we just want the benefits or do we actually want the king? Do we want Jesus? Do we want the person? Do we want that relationship or do we just want the good things that might come out of it? And once again, Palm Sunday is such a perfect example of this, how we can easily be swayed by the culture around us. Because, I mean, here's Jesus. He rides into the holy city on a donkey. It's fulfilling this ancient prophecy that we'll look at later. Everyone's praising at the top of their lungs. Like, incredible moment. And then within a week, within a week, the same crowds of Jerusalem are gathered outside Pilate's house and saying, crucify him. Give us us Barabbas, the convicted murderer. Give us him and crucify Jesus. Within a week, they'd been riled up by the Pharisees and the religious leaders to cry that out after they'd just (laughs) thrown their cloaks and their palms all on the ground saying, blessed is the king. We need to be so aware of how quickly we can be manipulated by the culture around us. We need to be aware of it. We need to keep each other accountable within it. We need to understand that there are people who don't want this man to reign over us. They don't want the king. And we need to recognize that actually our lives are different. We actually accept and submit to the reign of the king, which happens in the parable as well. There are people in the parable that Jesus talks about, who submit to the reign of the king, even though he's not physically present, they engage in his business, they use what they've been given appropriately and at the end they're rewarded. So here's the thing, if we want to walk the way of Jesus, we need to recognize that everything that we have, everything that we do is subject to his rule and reign. Everything. Everything. Everything is subject to His rule and reign. If He's the King, He's the King over everything. He's not the King over this little bit or this little bit, or the King on Sunday, or the King on, you know, the days where I feel good, or the King when you know things are going well. He's the King of everything. And once again, we hear the challenge of that, and I, we spoke about that a couple weeks ago. We hear. The conviction and the challenge of that, but we need to hear the invitation as well, because this is a gracious King, it's a loving King, who invites us into life. You know, these people said that they were they were given ten minas. One was given five, one was given ten, the other one one. And um, a mina was about ten. It's like equivalent today would be ten thousand dollars. So imagine being given a hundred thousand dollars to use for the kingdom of God. I find that exciting. I don't know about you, but I go, "All right, I, I got, so, I got some ideas. We can do something here." You know, of course, it's a bit easy, cause it's like it's not my money, you know, and I can just do whatever. But like, that's a cool opportunity, is it not? To be able to think, oh, you know, what I've been given breath. I've been given resources. I've been given possessions, money, time, gifts, talents. I've been given all this to use in God's kingdom, which is eternal and everlasting. There's meaning and there's purpose. There's transformation. Like, I go, that is, that's an opportunity for us. Like, that is the reign of the king. That is, that is what I want to submit my life to, knowing that there's actually everlasting in that. There's eternity in that. See, just a few paragraphs earlier, in the middle of chapter 18, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. Many of you probably know the story of this young man who essentially ticks all the boxes. He's young, he's rich, and he's done all the commandments since a young kid. He's been nailing Church 101. Like he's got it down pat. And in the eyes of the Jewish audience, he's like, he's been blessed because he's done the right thing. He's the ideal candidate for the kingdom. And he comes to Jesus and he says, "Um, how do I inherit the kingdom? How do I get in? Thinking that I'm going to get in. What does Jesus say to him? Have you done all these things? Yeah, I've done all these things. Well, sell sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man walks away because he has great wealth. And Jesus lets him walk. Why? Because he wasn't ready to subject to the rule of the king over his finances. He kept one area, he wanted one area of his life to like, don't touch that. That's mine. For us, we need to let everything be subject to the rule of the king. Jesus says in himself in Matthew 6, Matthew 6, Seek seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. In the context of that passage, He's talking about do not worry. (laughs) Look at the birds of the air. They get what they need. Look at the lilies in the field. They get what they need. Seek first my kingdom and everything else will be added unto you. Put the king first and everything else will fall into place. And we either believe that or we don't. We believe that as we subject ourselves to the king, as we submit to his rule and reign, we believe that actually things will work out. Everything else will be added unto us. It's a challenging thing, but it's a life-giving thing. And we need to see that. When we do this, when we recognize the king, when we respond to him appropriately, one day, according to the parable, we'll hear words that, we should be desperate to hear. Jesus looks at his servants and says, Well done. Well done, good and faithful servants. Doesn't matter on your success, <laughs> doesn't matter on how good you do, it's just, Well done, good and faithful servant. You stayed the course, you held on. You know, and are they the words that we want to hear come the end of time? Well done, good and faithful servant. Like that's what we've got to be looking towards that at the end, that would be the words that we hear. And if that's the end, (laughs) then we live our life backwards from there. And say, okay, if that's what I want to hear at the end, then therefore that means I need to do from here on in. If we want to live with Jesus as King in eternity, then we need to live like that now. We need to believe that He is the King. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. And this is from the book, The Great Divorce, where he says, you know, all that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Is that, where do you fall in that, that camp? Is God saying to you, okay, your will be done. And eventually what happens with that, according to the parable, is that there is punishment. There's eternal separation from the king. Are we going to continue to do our own thing or will we submit to the reign of the king and say, you know what, your will be done. Each and every day, each and every moment, each and every hour, your will be done. Who's the one that reigns in your life? Who's the king? And while it's not the nicest start to a message, (laughs) we need to hear it. We can't skip over it because it sets up what happens later on. These are the words that linger in the background as Jesus walks into Jerusalem. He says he approached Jerusalem and he's told this parable and it lingers in the back that we did not want this man to reign over us. And then he comes into the city. But let's jump to the other side of the story before we get into the triumphal entry. Let's look at the renovations of the king. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read just from forty-one, verse forty-one to forty-eight. Oh, I think it's on the screen there. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to him, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus tells this parable about how people don't want him to reign, he enters the city, and then he weeps, and he clears out the temple. Um, let's put a couple of things straight with this story. This is not like out of control Jesus. You know, it seems like his emotions are all over the place. He's crying, he's getting angry, he's driving out the temple. What's going on? Um, firstly, it's, it's, not, it's not a dummy spit. He's not having a temper tantrum, or as I was reading some people calling it a temple tantrum. I was like, "Oh, not even I can go there. That's that's bad." He's been to Jerusalem before. We see in early in Luke that um, his parents took him to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. This was sort of part of the Jewish tradition that they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem every Passover. So people from all over the world, all over the country, come to Jerusalem this time of year. So Jesus is probably been to Jerusalem numerous times, we know from the Bible, at least probably once or twice. Um, we see in the, cha- in the book of John, in chapter 2, Jesus drives out the temple. That's the one where he creates the whip, and it seems a bit more aggressive, and it's like, whoa, that's a bit more uh, aggressive. So it seems that it's possibly that this has happened twice, that Jesus has gone early in his ministry in John. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record the story at the end of his ministry. So it suggests that he's probably done this a couple times. And, um, and in Luke, in particular, we get the, the emphasis on, he said, he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. So what happened is people from all over Israel, all over the world, be coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple for the Passover, and they had to make sacrifices in part of that time. And so rather than these people coming from all around, traveling with all these animals, there'll be people in the temple that would sell them. But of course, with so many people around, you can ramp up your prices, you can make more profit, and that's what would happen. And so what was happening is that people were getting ripped off in the temple to make their sacrifices that they sort of needed to make. And so that's very much the emphasis on Luke. If, you read, as you, if you've been reading, you would have been seeing that Luke has a strong... Emphasis on the poor and the needy, and particularly the exploitation that comes with the Pharisees and the religious rulers. And so, we get in Luke that Jesus drives out those who sold. He's angry at the exploitation, the injustice of it, um, and obviously the words "den of robbers" sort of seems to suggest that as well. Uh, In Matthew and Mark they mentioned that Jesus drove out the buyers and the sellers and he overthrew the tables. So it's a bit more extended. And, um... So what's it all about? What's Jesus doing here? I want to suggest this, that this is not Jesus in rage mode. This is Jesus in rebuild mode. You know, it starts out with him weeping. He's actually, his heart's broken for this city and for these people because, because why? Verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. They'd missed the king. They'd missed the point. And so his heart breaks. And so he comes into the city and he sort of says, let's get rid of all this stuff and let's get back to the heart of it. This is a house of prayer. This is a house to connect with your father. And then he sits there every day teaching. If you were really angry at what was going on, I I feel like you wouldn't go back each day. And continue, like, this is Jesus, not just angry and frustrated, but his heart is to rebuild, to restore, to get people back to the heart of what the temple is all about, that this is about connecting with your Father in heaven. So what does this mean for us? When Jesus comes into the city, his heart breaks because he wants to restore and renew and rebuild The people. And maybe that's just the same in our lives. That when the king comes into our life, he actually wants to restore us and renew us and rebuild us and renovate us. To put things right. With compassion, his heart breaks, but he's also very serious about what he wants to get done. I don't know if you ever thought about this that the king has a renovation plan for your life. I don't know if you ever thought like that, that Jesus actually wants to transform you and to renew you, restore you, make you whole. Like that is amazing. If you know that you're broken and you're a sinner and that you stuff up and that you've made mistakes, like we talked about last week, if you're the tax collector, you knowing your sin, knowing your brokenness, then yes, you welcome the rebuild. But if you're the Pharisee trusting in your own righteousness, you say, well, I'm, I'm good. Be gentle. Don't, don't touch anything. We're good here. See, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus loves you as you are. And we're going to focus so much on that next week, that, that while we're still sinners, Romans says, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for us to become perfect. He doesn't wait for us to, you know, get it all sorted when He dies for us and He loves us. But He loves us as we are, but He also loves us too much to leave us in that place. And God wants to rebuild, wants to restore, wants to renew our lives. Once again, this is how C.S. Lewis puts it. wrote this 60, 70 years ago, and it might be a bit hard to see. Sorry. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs that needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. So you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And I just love that thought, that God is actually coming into our lives, picking us, choosing us, saving us, to then transform us and to make us new, to make us like him, and it's not just a decent little college so you can have a nice life and do your own thing. He's building a palace. He's, and, and it's going to, like I said, it starts knocking the house about in ways that you don't quite expect. And there's things that you go, oh, I don't know if I want you to touch that. But when we submit to the reign of the king, knowing that that leads to life, it means we also need to submit to his renovation design and say, you know what, have your way. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Come and have your way among us. And Once again, like I alluded before, the rich young ruler, he sort of said, no, I don't want that. He didn't realize that God had something different in mind for his possessions and his finances. One that I believe would have led to life. But a few stories later, and Jesus says you know, how difficult it is for the king for the rich to enter the kingdom. But then a few stories later, we get the story of Zacchaeus. Most likely a wealthy tax collector. And Jesus sees him and enters into his house. And what does it say in, in verse 6? says, Zacchaeus, he hurried down and he received him joyfully. Received Jesus joyfully. And what does he then do? He gives away half of what he had. Half of his possessions gone, bang, to the poor. And everyone that he's ripped off, he repays them four times the amount. So if he cheated someone of $5, he goes and gives them 20 Just like that. No questions asked. That's what I'm doing. And Jesus looks at him and says, today salvation has come to this house. See, one, one knows that he's broken and knows that I need a change, and I need to be transformed. And Jesus is the way to that. The other one, the rich young ruler, probably doesn't. And Jesus lets him walk. You need to realize that the King wants to renovate our lives. He wants to make us more like Him. So there may be things that you need to let go of. There may be people that you need to forgive. There may be people different from you that you need to love and serve. Any gifts that you need to use, money that you need to give away, possessions that you need to share, attitudes that need changing, values that need correcting, dreams that need redirecting, priorities that need fixing. When the king comes in, he desires to put things right, and he'll be compassionate. He'll be gracious. He'll be gentle. But there will also be times when he goes, actually, we need to change this. And he might overthrow some tables. He might drive some people out. Hopefully, he doesn't need to crack some whips. Uh, I don't know. That's a bit scary for me. Here's the thing. I fully believe that Jesus not just has the desire, but he has the power to transform and change your life. As we submit to him, as we accept and receive him. The big question is, will you let him? Will you welcome it? Will you accept it? Will you join him in it? Will we help each other with it? Will you submit to the reign and the renovation of the king? And So we look at the last section, the one we read at the start, the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and people go crazy excited. They're throwing their cloaks. In Matthew, we read that they're getting palm branches. They're shouting, they're yelling, they're praising God. And it's not, like, it's not because it's just a hyped-up moment or anything. Like, this, is, this is legit praise, because people recognize that something is happening. Um, in Zechariah, got, I think we've got on the screen, Zechariah chapter 9. This is written probably 500 years before this happens. And this is what Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when Jesus comes in, riding a donkey, like there's at least a few people that would know this verse. People are aware that actually, there is something happening here. This guy's been doing miracles and casting out demons and darkness. He's been doing all this stuff and now he's coming to Jerusalem on a donkey and people, well, they do exactly that. They rejoice greatly. They shout aloud. There's a sense that people recognize that this is a king. And just look at their response. I love the response of the people while... You know it changes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But look at Luke uh, thirty verse thirty six. Says they spread their cloaks on the road. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." I just want to focus us on the the action words. They spread their cloaks. They rejoice. They praise God with a loud voice. This is what Matthew says in his recollection of events. I think we've got it on the screen Matthew 21. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others went and cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered the city, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? This is what it looks like to respond to the king when he comes in. It's a massive praise party. People are rejoicing. People are shouting. People are saying, Blessed is the king. And here's one big thing that challenged me as I read this is that you cannot respond passively to the king when he comes in. I mean, Jesus says himself, if if they're silent, the rocks are going to cry out. Like someone, something is going to praise the king. They're going to respond appropriately. We cannot be passive in how we respond to the king when he comes in. And when's the last time that you've rejoiced in God? Like really like rejoiced and been happy and glad in what he's done. When's the last time that you've praised God with a loud voice? Like You all sing nicely on a Sunday, but what about with a loud, loud voice? When have you shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David? I love what it says in Matthew, that that last bit, that the whole city was stirred. The whole city was stirred, not because Jesus was there, but because of the way the people had responded. You imagine if that's us, that for us to stir up our community, our city, for people to go, who is this Jesus what if a big part of that is actually our response to Jesus and our worship and our praise of Him? Now, obviously, this is a bit of a passionate area for me, but I feel like we are are way too passive in the way that we praise and respond to our King. So no wonder people look in and go, oh, I don't want much to do with that. Well, no wonder people that are in go. I'm not quite sure about this because everyone's just passive about it. That when Jesus came into the city, people threw their cloaks, they shouted, they rejoiced, they praised him in such a way that it stirred up the city. I go. That is what I want my heart to be. That people notice that there's something going on here. And you can't fake it because people will sniff that out in a moment. But genuinely rejoicing and excited that the King has come and that He reigns and He rules and He renovates and therefore I'm going to praise. Now, of course, this isn't just about singing songs. I don't want to give the wrong idea that we just got to sing songs louder. Although... I do think we cannot be passive in how we worship. Because like I said in a matter of a week the crowd's voice had completely changed from blessed is the king to crucify him. You know, so it's not just about singing songs. The whole point of this whole chapter is that if the king reigns, the king rules, then we respond in praise. No ifs or buts. No, I'm not feeling so good this week, so I'm not sure about that. No, circumstances change that. If the king rules and reigns, we respond in praise. And that involves everything that we have. Our voices should shout that the king is here. The generous use of our finances and possessions, that should shout that the king is here. Our worship gatherings, as we gather, whether it's here, whether it's in a life group, that should begin to stir up something in our city that the kingdom is here. Our lives, as they're changed and transformed, they should display that the king is here. Everything about what we do should begin to share that actually Jesus has come. His kingdom is here, that things are happening, and you can see it in the way that I live, and you can see it as you encounter him. That if we're to receive Jesus as King, means we submit to His reign. We serve Him with all that we have. We allow Him to renovate as He see pleases. And we respond in praise. This is all about receiving the King. This is how John puts it at the start of his gospel. John chapter 1, it says, you know, the word was, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You know, it's this epic prologue of who Jesus is. And then it comes to verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. And to receive Jesus means to believe in His name. That the idea behind the word "receive" is to receive him in the manner in which he was sent. Because we can receive Jesus as a whole bunch of different things. Sort of the C.S. Lewis thing, the liar, lunatic, or lord. It's just the three options. It's either just a good teacher. It's either false. or People receive him all different ways. But for us to be children of God means to receive him in the manner in which he was sent. Which John says means to believe in his name. To believe in all that he says he is. And real simply, like his name, like, what's his name? Jesus Christ. Which literally means Savior King. Receiving Jesus means believing that he is our Savior and that he is our King. Simple as that. And as crazy as that. To believe that he's the one that died for our sins, that... He's the one that's taken our place, that through him we receive life, but also believing that he's king, that he's Lord, that he's the one that's going to rule and reign forever. And I'm going to start that now in my life. This is really the heart of the gospel. That we've been given this gift of grace and love and forgiveness and redemption. We've been given the gift of a king who not just rules and reigns, but he protects, he provides, he fights our battles, he comforts, it's everything that we need. But the big question is, do you receive the gift? Do you open it up? Do you allow it to transform your life? Do you accept him in, or do you just keep him at arm's length? Do you just have one foot in, one foot out? If we're to properly receive him, we need to believe and submit and accept that he is the Savior and the King of everything in my life. See, Palm Sunday is all about Jesus entering a city and the people receiving him. And the Bible teaches that the very same Jesus now knocks on your heart, on our lives. And the same question is then put to us. Will you receive him? Will you submit to his reign? Will you allow him to renovate? Will you respond in praise? And will you receive the King who leads us to life and life everlasting? i give you just, give you a moment. Pick one of those questions. Which one of those questions is, you know, you look at it and go, okay, that's me this morning. That's the one that God's working on me. That's the one that God wants to change and transform in me this morning. Is it the submission to his reign? Is there things that you think, you know what, I need to surrender that to God? Is there things that you have go, actually, I need just God to change some things in me? Or is it, you know, I just need to respond in praise. I just need to thank Him, to worship Him like He deserves. What does it look like for you to receive the King this morning? Just take a few moments just to ponder that in your heart. Ask God. Pray about that. I'm going to... Um, invite our music team up and we're going to um, we're going to sing two songs at the end of this morning a right? bit, bit radical S- stick with me for a bit but like I said I was really convicted this week that we just need to respond we need to receive and, and submit and I think so often that Space in worship and in song actually allows us to do that. So during this time you might sit and pray. Actually I'm gonna invite our prayer team. If who I don't know who's rostered on to pray this morning, but if there are people here that want to just be ready to pray for people, or you might just tap someone next to you and ask them to pray for you. We're gonna sing these songs. I want to encourage us that we would just really step in. That we would say that there's there's no other name. Lift up your eyes. The king has come. And the mountains bow down and all creation worships. And my heart is that we too would then do that. With joy, with gladness, with passion, with fervor, with prayer, and with asking God, say, you know what? This is me. I want to receive you as king this morning again. Let you into that part of my life. I want to lift lift up you high because of what you've done. Because he's worthy. Hosanna to the King. Hosanna literally means He saves. He saves. He saves and therefore I'm going to praise. I'm going to lift Him up. I'm going to declare Him worthy. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to sing these songs. and.